You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. So, I want to say to you, as you're finding our text, Happy New Year. Now, I really should mean it this way, should say it this way, Happy New Year to the church. I know it's late November, I haven't lost my mind, I realize we just celebrated Thanksgiving and we haven't even begun to celebrate Christmas, so then why am I saying Happy New Year to you? Because, and some of you may know this, but others of you may not, according to the church calendar, and if you're saying the church calendar, what's that? An alternative way used to be the way of counting down our cycle of 365 days a year. The church calendar isn't based on the positions of the sun or the moon or the start or the end of school. The church calendar is actually oriented around key aspects in the life of Christ. And in, on that calendar, today is actually the last Sunday of the Christian year. And so again, I say, Happy New Year. <laughs> in other words... While the outside world is still basking in Thanksgiving leftovers and ramping up the Christmas music, the decorations and the sales, we are having New Year's Eve here at Grace. And in fact, in some traditions of the church, not all, but in some, this last Sunday of the Christian year actually has a name, and its name is Christ the King Sunday. Christ the King Sunday. This designation is actually relatively new, happened in the 20th century. It was instituted in 1925 by Pope Pius XI. Pope Pius of the Catholic Church, and he instituted Christ the King Sunday. He declared it to be so in response in 1925 to the rising power of dictatorships in Europe. The idea was in declaring a Christ the King Sunday, it was meant to counter this this rising trend so that followers of Jesus would be reminded there is no true ruler but Christ, as well as being reminded from where all power and authority come. This annual observance of Christ the King, again created by the Catholic Church, quickly became adopted by other strands of the Christian faith, including the Lutheran tradition. So here we are. Today is New Year's Eve, and it's Christ the King Sunday. And I thought, in light of that, of reflecting on this question, this idea, kind of hearkening back to why this date was established, what exactly does it mean to say, Jesus is our King? That's our theme for today. What does that mean, and, and, and why does it matter? And, and let's be honest, this is a question that's interesting for us, difficult maybe, because as Americans, this is hard for us to answer, because if you stop and think about it, the founding of our nation was based in part on the rejection of being ruled by a king. The very idea of kingship is alien, or at least archaic, to us in a representative democracy. So... In order to better reflect on this question of what does it mean to say that Jesus is king, we're going to look at a very interesting and telling exchange that has as its center this theme of Jesus as king. And it's an odd text for us this morning. I recognize this for some of you because, as you'll notice if you already have opened your Bibles, it's normally a a passage we would be reading on Good Friday, not on on the heels of beginning the Advent season counting down to Christmas. But nonetheless, 
Let us enter into the Gospel of John, chapter 18, starting in verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No, they shouted back. Not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing out to you, him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man! As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside his palace. From where do you come from? he asked. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate asked. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to send, set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king, but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Again, a challenging reading on Good Friday or any day. But a reading that I hope you were, as you were listening, is really a conversation, a dialogue about kingship. The very first question Pilate asks to Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? All four New Testament gospels have him asking that question in those exact words. Is Jesus a king? What kind of king is he? Pilate wants to know. 
Pilate needs to know because king is a political term. And Pilate is a political person. The governor of Judea. Is Jesus a threat? All four Gospels have Pilate asking the same question. Are you the king of the Jews? But only three of them present Jesus' reply as you say so. Here in John, Jesus' answer is a little bit different. Jesus answers a question with a question. Do you ask this on your own? Or did others tell you about me? In other words, Jesus is asking, why are you asking this? After a bit more verbal sparring we heard with Pilate, Jesus indirectly embraces the title when he asserts, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, I'm a different kind of king, not the kind of king that you would expect, not the sort you'd recognize. As we listen to this exchange between Jesus and Pilate, again, we're witnessing a collision of two different understandings of what it means to be king. Pilate is a political creature. And for him, kings have power, influence, and authority that are wielded, lorded over their subjects, subjects who serve to advance the wealth, the position, and the might of their king. Jesus, however, speaks not of being born to be elevated to sit on a throne, but have, having come down into the world to testify, to bear witness to the truth the truth of what real power is. Not here in John, but elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus elaborates on this understanding of real power when he puts it this way. You know that those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so with you. Rather, whoever wishes to become great among you will be your servant Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For Jesus, true power was the power to serve others. The ability and willingness to care for and to protect others from calming a storm to casting out demons, from standing up for those discarded by society to kneeling down with a towel around his waist to wash his disciples' feet. For Jesus, true power was the power to serve others. Jesus used his authority to bear witness to the truth about what God's kingdom is really like, a stark contrast to the kingdoms of humanity. The way Jesus modeled it, a king made in the image of God forgave his enemies rather than annihilating them. The way Jesus modeled it, a king made in the image of God redeemed those lost under his watch instead of condemning them to die. A king made in the image of God the way Jesus modeled it, adopted the weak and the lowly as his own subjects versus catering and giving sanction to the wealthy and the strong. To a world running on self-interest, Jesus offers an alternative vision of the way things ought to be, the way things were meant to be, a shared community built on the power of grace and service. If you're on the side of truth, Jesus tells Pilate, you will listen to me. What a novel concept. A king, a politician who tells the truth. 
But Pilate finds this idea absolutely confounding, absurd. And so he answers with a dismissive wave of the hand rhetorical question, what is truth? What is truth? They say truth is the first casualty of war. It is often the first casualty of politics as well. The kings of this world aren't interested in telling the truth. They're interested in holding on to power at all costs. Pilate asks, what is truth? But he cannot see the answer standing right in front of him. For truth is not a philosophical position or a creedal proof. Truth is the person standing in silence before Pilate. The truth is a person, the word made flesh. But here, standing before the consummate politician named Pilate is a different kind of king. A king who isn't looking to hold on to power, but instead looks to give it away. To give it all away for the sake of the world. Despite failing to see it, Pilate, you heard it, almost sets the truth free until he pulls the crowd and the candidate he wants for parole loses the election. Jesus doesn't get the votes. Pilate appeals their decision, but the mob will not be moved. The crowd wants the terrorist named Barabbas, not the peacemaker named Jesus. Pilate then subsequently tries to wash his hands of the whole affair, but only Pilate can lawfully pass the sentence and the people are out for blood. Pilate tries to buy some time by interrogating the accused once more, but Jesus has nothing left to say. And when Pilate attempts to muscle Jesus into further conversation by appealing to his political office, Jesus redirects Pilate to acknowledge where his power, all power, comes from. From above. From our creator. And then the truth ends up taking a beating. Knowing how to give the people what they want, Jesus is paraded out with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. The trial ends in a sight gag, and the crowd goes wild as Pilate declares, Here is your king! These are the words Pilate used when he presented Jesus to the crowd. Here is your king! And beloved, I say to you, Here is our king! Next week, we begin the season of Advent, a season of waiting, anticipating the arrival of Christmas, a looking back to the first coming of Christ as a babe born in Bethlehem, but also in the life of the church, a looking ahead in anticipation of the greatest Christmas of all, the one we have yet to celebrate when Christ comes back as our once and future king. Is this the one who stands before Pilate? Bloodied and bruised in a makeshift purple robe, wearing a nasty crown of thorns, about to sit not upon a throne, but to be strung up on a cross, the kind of king we were expecting? The sort of king we're looking for? Take care before you answer. Take care before you answer. It can be easy for us to side with Jesus, to confess Christ as king and his kingdom to be of a different kind than the Roman rule or the expectation of all Israel. We get that. That's easy. They couldn't see it then and therefore got it all wrong, whereas we can see it now and therefore joyfully profess our allegiance 
But beloved, do we really understand Christ as king and his kingdom not being of this world defies not just a Roman or a Jewish understanding of power and rule. Christ as king and his kingdom being not of this world defies any human conception of governance, including a Western American one. Last week, when we finished up our series on flourishing, I had a statement in there, and I got pushback from one person. I thought I might get more, where I talked about this whole idea that our lives are to be embassies of the kingdom of heaven. And in making that point, I emphasized that first and foremost, we are not Americans. We are followers of Jesus. And this is not to bag on being an American. I'm proud to be an American, but first and foremost, we are followers of Jesus. And like I said, I had one person who pushed back, one person who wanted to talk, came aside after the service and said, why are the two exclusive to each other? And I had to say, I'm proud to be an American, and I think democracy is the best form of government there is, but you have to see that there is a place where these two things don't line up with what Jesus professed his kingdom to be about. We got into a very detailed conversation, and and I'm not going to rehash that, but I'm simply going to say to you, part of what we need to understand when we talk and profess that Jesus is our king is it doesn't line up completely with representative democracy. In fact, it doesn't line up in many ways at all. I mean, really, I mean, if if we really go deep here, and I'm going to ask some tough questions, and I'm, I'm acknowledging that today. Are we really, and that means me too, any different than those who were first appalled scandalized and ultimately rejected Jesus by crying out for his crucifixion. Deep down, I mean, come on, deep down, don't we still want our leaders to be a reflection of us? Our values, our beliefs, our agenda, isn't that why we vote for them? Jesus doesn't come down looking for our vote. Jesus doesn't come down looking to be a reflection of us. Jesus comes down so that we can see a reflection of who we were meant to be in him. But still, we, we pick, you and I, I mean, me too. And I, again, I'm not, I'm not apart from this. We pick the leaders who say what we think, who express what we feel, who are willing to get things done with the least impact on our comfort and well-being. I hate to tell you, that's not Jesus. We appreciate the kings who make us feel better about ourselves, right? Who promise us we'll be great again. Who give us someone else to blame for all of our problems. And then along comes Jesus, right? Who tells us what we don't want to hear. What we refuse to believe is true. That we aren't the center of the universe. That we are the problem. Hello, that we must die to ourselves. That we need to stop condemning our enemies and instead love and forgive them. That what truly matters is not how much we've achieved, how much we've earned, how much we've amassed for ourselves, but rather what matters is how often we've served others, how much we gave away, how little we relied on our titles, our bank accounts, and our popularity. And then, to top it all off, this Jesus has the nerve to insist we can't accomplish any of this by ourselves. 
No matter how hard we try, no matter how long we work at it, hasn't he heard of the American dream? No, Jesus says, we can only get to where we want to be by following him, relying on what he's done, depending upon what he can do in and through us by devoting ourselves exclusively to his way, to his truth, to his life. Come on. That kind of talk doesn't get you crowned. It gets you crucified. Then and now. Beloved, Jesus wasn't killed because he told good stories and he healed people. Jesus wasn't killed because he said, I want to be the king of your heart. Jesus was put to death because he professed to be the Lord of our lives. And that means our ultimate allegiance is to be to Christ alone. Now, given all that, what is our response when Pilate says to us, here is your king? You see, the challenge, the challenge is not proclaiming Christ's kingship in prayer or song or Sunday worship. That's not the challenge. The challenge is living like Christ is king in everything we say and do when we aren't in this space, when we aren't lifting our voice to heaven in song or in prayer. The challenge is the temptation to confess with our lips but to deny with our lives that Christ is king. I'm asking tough questions this morning, but what else can I say? These are questions, understand, that I'm asking myself first, and I want you to join me. (laughs) Do we honestly live as though everything we have, everything, all that we are, all of it, is because of Jesus and therefore belongs to Christ to be exercised for his purposes for his glory. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray. We all know this, right? We repeat it by heart. Thy kingdom come. The words are familiar, but do we know for what we are praying? We can say it by rote, but do we actually mean it? The next time we say the Lord's Prayer, and you've just got a couple of minutes before it's going to come, before you just simply say, thy kingdom come, ask yourself, functionally, practically, daily, is it thy kingdom come Or is it my kingdom come? Are we praying for a king who will intervene and support our side of all of our struggles? Are we praying for a king who will offer us the answers we want to all of our prayers? Or are we praying for the king who gives us what we may not want, but we ultimately always need? Are we praying for the king who intervenes and supports not our desire to always be right, but who intervenes and supports his longing for us to be reconciled to each other? But then again, maybe some of us find ourselves asking why we even need a king. I mean, if the history of the world told in the tales of kings and kingdoms is nothing more than people grappling for or holding on to power, always at the expense, the abuse, or domination of others, what good is a king anyway? I mean, again, isn't that part of the American story? 
Isn't that why we're here? What good is a king anyway? And more and more, we live in deeply cynical times. When leader after leader has failed us, we guard our hearts and our minds rather than, than open them up anymore to promises we believe will never come true. Pilate is our cynical self, isn't he? Questioning the whole notion of what is true anymore. And like Pilate, who just keeps fighting to preserve the little control he perceives he has by deflecting responsibility and riling up the crowd, when we lose faith that power is not something that can be shared, but is only something that can be grabbed, we will settle for everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. When we become convinced, when we lose faith that power cannot be shared, it's not something that can be shared, but can only be grabbed, we will settle for everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. That sounds fair. That sounds just. You do you and I'll be me and just leave everybody else alone. But try as we may to remain isolated from each other. Our lot in life is intimately connected What I do or don't do affects you, and the same goes for you towards me. When it's every person for him or herself, somebody always gets hurt. Somebody always pays the price. Because here's the thing. No matter what we tell ourselves, there's always a king. There's always a king. Everyone has a king. We all live according to the dictates of someone or something. It may be money. It may be pleasure. It may be reputation. It may be power. It may be yourself. But make no mistake, we all have a king. The only question is who is the rightful king? Who should be king? And there is only one. There is only one who is able to pay the price to fix all that is broken within and between us. There is only one who can bring order out of our chaos, life from our death. There is only one who is fit to be king because he is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. We got a little bit of a reprieve this year, maybe. But next week is when Advent starts. Next week is when Christmas starts to count down. Of course, that began for some of us back in October at Halloween when the stores changed everything. But we have a little bit of a reprieve this morning. A little bit of reprieve before what we call the holiday rush will ramp up once again. And we're all subject to it, myself included. The most wonderful time of the year by the time it finally ends will become the the time of the year we can't wait to put behind us. And I want to ask you this morning, I want to invite you this morning, before we start, over these next few weeks, as we are going to become so fixated on either what we want for Christmas or what others want for Christmas, I want to invite us not to lose sight of what we've already received the kind of king we've been given because of Christmas. In the midst of all your decorating, in the midst of all your shopping, in the midst of all the stuff, I'm inviting you to ponder in your heart like Mary 
these things, these realities, the kind of king we have in Jesus. In Jesus, ponder this, we have a king who is not content to rule from afar, but comes down to meet us where we are in our weakness and our need. As you go out into this world that over the next couple of weeks is going to get ramped up with all kinds of messages about what this life is about, about what you are about, what Christmas is about, what the world is about, remember and think upon the king that we have in Jesus who refuses to conform to the expectations of this world. It's limited vision of worthiness, the sliding scale it has for the value of life and its lack of perfect justice. And instead, ponder anew the king that we have who willingly chooses to embrace everyone, to forgive everyone, to redeem everyone because unconditional love is who he is. Ponder in your heart that in Jesus we have a king who, again, isn't interested in winning our vote, but who is committed to saving our life and in so doing, transforming how we live. In Jesus, we have a king who isn't a reflection of us, but comes as a reflection of who we are meant to be in him, our true humanity, who we can be together Peace on earth, goodwill to men. You're going to hear that a lot over the next couple of weeks. And you know what? It's not just something sugary and sweet that we bring out for Christmas. In Jesus Christ, we see the possibility that that's not just a song lyric. That's not just a Christmas card. That can be our way of life. Think about the fact that in Jesus, we have a king who never gains our allegiance by force who never gains our allegiance by forth, but just continually prompts and patiently waits as he leads us to surrender ourselves before his reign. And in Jesus, we have a king who doesn't just command us to follow him and the mission he establishes for us to love God and to love one another. Think upon this. Jesus doesn't just command us to follow him, but he gives us his spirit both to show us his way and to empower our will our ability to act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly like he does. In Jesus, we have a king who invites us into his throne room, into his rest, and through his word and spirit continually renews and refreshes us so that his thoughts become our thoughts, his ways become our ways, and we are able to go out into this world and serve by gathering up the fragments, healing all the remains, so that in the end, nothing will be lost and all will be free. Jesus alone is our rightful and only king because in the image of a scorned and mocked Christ clad in Rome's imperial purple with a crown of thorns is our God. Our eternal creator come down in the flesh to put things right, to lead us out of the darkness and usher us into his kingdom, even as he implores us to recognize and make more manifest that kingdom already around us. And together in so doing, becoming all that we were meant to be. My friends, a new year is about to begin for us as the church. Next Sunday, we will begin anew the journey of Advent, of preparing for Christmas. This sanctuary will look much different than it does now. 
And when you come in next week, when you go home today, remember that Advent is not first about celebrating. Advent is first about waiting and contemplating as we look for, as we listen for the whispers and hints of the coming of our Savior through the prophets and the promises of old. Beloved, in the space between now and December 25th, let us prepare to celebrate Let's not start yet. Let us prepare to celebrate the one who is coming again to be with us. And let us prepare to celebrate less through our preoccupation and accumulation of what we want for Christmas or what we need to buy for someone else. But instead, let us prepare to celebrate by paying attention to what we already have been given by him to share with others. As we worship, not before a throne that leads to glory, but a manger that ends up becoming a cross. Let's follow our leader by acknowledging not just the people that made it onto our Christmas list, but honoring, noticing, and serving the ones our Father has put right in front of us during this holy season. Soon, and very soon, Once upon a midnight clear, we will gather with shepherds and angels before the miracle of divinity made flesh and gaze upon the one who comes to bring the love, grace, and truth of his reign into this world as far as the curse is found. And what we will say in awe on that silent night before a stable in Bethlehem is what we will later repeat dumbfounded before an empty garden tomb. Long 